0: I'm re-releasing an episode of Bulletproof Radio with Mark Matson, who's a PhD, and I call him the godfather of intermittent fasting, who published a ton of research about how intermittent fasting improves your brain function and improves your metabolic health. He spent decades working on this, long before anyone was paying attention to it. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do.
1: Bulletproof Radio a state of high performance.
0: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's guest is the foremost scientific researcher on the topic of intermittent fasting, a guy that I'm really, uh, really excited to talk with uh, because there's so much academic research that goes back uh, quite a while now about what intermittent fasting does, but it's one of these precious pieces of knowledge that hasn't entered our consciousness uh, where it, it sort of it has been French knowledge, and it's just now becoming something that not just biohackers do, but your mom might do. In fact, my mom does do it, and it makes a really big difference. He's also an expert on what it does for your brain, and he's one of the foremost researchers looking at cellular and molecular mechanisms of neurodegeneration, like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. If you read my book Headstrong, I actually referenced some of his work in that book. I'm talking about Dr. Mark Matson, who's a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins. Welcome to the show, Mark.
2: Thanks, Dave, I'm looking forward to talking to you. I've followed your Bulletproof website for a long time, and when I can, uh, listen to your podcasts, which are always both informative and entertaining, so I'm looking forward to our discussion.
0: Well, let's, let's get in uh, on, on fasting. And just go in. For people who, all right, you know, we've heard about fasting. You have pictures of you know people in robes fasting for days on end and things like that. Talk to me about the difference between calorie restriction and actual fasting and what you've learned about that over the course of your career. Uh,
2: the, the differences have to do with the frequency of food intake. Um, a typical human liver can store about 700 calories worth of glucose in the form of glycogen. And if you're just kind of moderate activity, uh, or like we are now, it takes 10, 12 hours to use up those 700 calories. And then when those calories go, then you start using fats, the fatty acids are released, and those are the precursors of the ketones. And so it's possible to Reduce your daily calorie intake, but eat, as you mentioned in your introduction, eat meals frequently. Every time you eat a meal, you replenish the glucose stores in your liver, and so your fats are never mobilized. your ketones never go up. So fasting, you know, uh, by definition, uh, if you're in a fasted ketogenic, ketogenic state, that's a sufficient time period with not eating to be designated as fasting. Uh if your ketones never go up, you haven't uh hit a fasting state.
0: Okay. What do you do? You've been studying this stuff for a long time. What what do you do when you wake up in the morning? Like what's a typical day for you? What's a typical week?
2: I never eat breakfast. And I usually try to work out midday, mid-day or early afternoon. Yep. I used to run a lot, do a lot of trail running, had some knee osteoarthritis because I had a meniscus tear probably. Yeah. But um, So now I'm mountain biking. Uh, maybe two or three days a week, I'm on the trails, on mountain bike. The other days, I usually just do some walking or stationary bike. But I, I pretty much always do that before I eat, around midday, early afternoon, and then I eat all my food within a, usually a six hour time window, sometimes five hours. Um, so that the rationale for exercising at the end of the fasting period is, it's pretty simple. You get an extra boost in the ketogenic state, but there's also um, a number of, of what we call pathways or signaling mechanisms that are activated by exercise uh, uh, both exercise and fasting to get an amplification of those pathways. Is, is this can, mTOR
0: we, you're talking about?
2: Well, yeah, that's one. So, and autophagy.
0: Ah, okay. Uh, some of my favorite words. Can you define so, them for people who don't know what they are? <laughs> mTOR and autophagy.
2: Uh, okay, and, and this again relates to the notion of the, the metabolic switch from glucose to ketones and what happens then. So when your glucose levels are... High normal, or particularly after eating a meal, uh, there's a pathway called the mTOR pathway in cells that is activated, and that pathway stimulates the uptake of the glucose. It also stimulates the uptake of amino acids Mm -hmm. from from proteins in your diet, and then the cells increase their protein synthesis, and they're in kind of a growth state. Uh, However, while they're in the growth state, they're also accumulating molecular garbage. Mm-hmm. So when cells are in a growth state, and your your glucose protein levels are up in your blood, uh, it can help the cells grow. But if that stays chronically on, there's accumulation of uh, molecules damaged by free radicals, dysfunctional mitochondria. Yeah. Those those damaged molecules are normally removed from the cells by a process called autophagy. It's the cell's garbage disposal.
0: In fact, we just had a recent interview on metabolic autophagy um, that that was very well received. And uh, it's a very important thing, like getting rid of the garbage. And you're saying that if you do an intermittent fast and then exercise at the end of it, you're going to turn up autophagy, and you're gonna turn up mTOR, which allows you to take amino acids and put it into the cells, or no? Because those don't go at the same time, right?
2: Uh, so, so, no, they, they go up, so the, during the fasting and exercise, mTOR pathway is inhibited. Mm-hmm. The, cells, the cells go into a stress resistance mode, and they're, they're trying to conserve energy, molecules, recycle, proteins, so autophagy, it's a garbage disposal, but it's also a recycling bin.
0: So you can, you can incinerate garbage to make energy?
2: To make energy, but also to, to, to um, break down damaged proteins, but then take the amino acids from those proteins that are not damaged and use them to make new proteins.
0: Okay, and you get this it, from fasting?
2: And exercise home. both, okay. and when you combine them, you get a further enhancement of the autophagy. Then, then when you eat and rest, then what happens is the cells have cleaned out the garbage. And then when you eat and rest, the mTOR pathway is active. The cells synthesize a lot of new proteins, and they can grow. For example, your muscle cells. Uh, when you exercise regularly, your muscle cells don't get bigger during the exercise, they get physically bigger during the rest period. But
0: So it's about recovery.
2: Right. But if you if you don't exercise, the cells never get signals that enhance their ability to grow when you do rest. So so these cycles of metabolic challenge recovery, challenge recovery, and the challenges being fasting and exercise and then uh eating and resting, sleeping is very important. Those intermittent challenges we think can optimize health. I published an article in Scientific American in 2015, uh, and the whole take-home message of the article was that many of the chemicals that are in fruits, vegetables, tea, coffee, plants uh, that are good for our health, the actual reason they're in the plants the evolutionary reason is that they are noxious agents, they're toxins. Right. And and caffeine's a good example. If you take pure caffeine and put it on your tongue, you wouldn't want to eat it. It's very bitter tasting. Uh yeah. and it's, caffeine's a natural pesticide produced by coffee beans and tea leaves and if you take coffee beans or tea leaves and put them on your counter, uh and, uh, and put most any food next to it, and there's ants in your house, the ants will avoid the coffee beans and the tea, and they'll go for the other things that don't have the bitter-tasting chemicals in
0: it. It's fascinating, nicotine's that way, too. And I mean, caffeine and nicotine are two of the smartest drugs from nature that increase human cognitive performance, and they're both kill bugs. Uh, which doesn't mean they're bad for us, uh, although nicotine in high doses no, from any no,
2: mechanism but is. What but. what's interesting here, Dave, is that some of those chemicals activate the exact same responses in cells that are activated by fasting and exercise. Wow. And one of those one of those pathways, which I'm sure you've heard of, is the NRF two yes. ARE pathway. Uh, it's for example, there's a chemical sulforaphane mm-hmm. that's present in high levels in broccoli, broccoli and sprouts. green leafy yeah. vegetables. And but the key thing of this pathway is it's an antioxidant defense pathway. So when this NRF2 ARE pathway is activated by exercise, fasting, some chemicals in plants, then cells boost their intrinsic Antioxidant defenses, and are more resistant to being damaged by free radicals. Um, And this is this is really why the trials of like vitamin E, vitamin A, vitamin C, and a lot of different diseases, cancers, etc., pretty much uniformly failed. What you don't you don't want to swamp your cells continuously with These chemicals that scavenge the free radicals because then the pathways, such as the NRF2 pathway, are never activated. Yeah. Because they're activated by the stress of the fasting, the exercise, or the chem.
0: There are lots of studies on mice done with water only fasting. And so there are people out there who say, "Oh, well, they just had water, so you should only have water." But all the stuff I know, even like traditional Chinese medicine, yeah. they at least had tea or coffee or, uh, you know, pine bark tea or whatever the heck, depending on where you're from. Uh, so I always say, look, when you're in fasting, have your coffee, have your tea, you know, enjoy your life. But the purists are like, "Oh, you know, we don't know what it does to your gut bacteria. Where are you on the spectrum of you should only do what the mice did versus have a little fun?"
2: Uh- I think it's actually a good idea, at least from the standpoint of the brain, to drink tea or coffee. Uh, during a fast? During, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah.
0: All right, and you'd be fine with uh, an herbal tea as well then? Yeah. Okay, got it. And you know, there's all sorts of different herbal teas you can do. Uh, what about mushrooms? Uh uh-huh. medicinal um, mushroom kind of teasing and people love I don't like chaga very much at all, but I, I've really gotten some benefits from the lions, man. I just had the life cycle guys on about that, and I just had Paul Stamets on, who's you know, a famous yeah, mushroom yeah. guy. Yeah. Is there, uh, and I, I love Paul, he's was, he was so cool. Is there anything that you've come across on using mushroom extracts, not actually eating them because that'd be calories during fasting?
2: Uh, no studies, uh. I am interested in mushrooms. I last few years, I started foraging. I've got Paul's big, thick mycelium book. running. I, I think
0: I've got it right uh, back there.
2: <laughs> yeah, and uh, I actually bought a, some uh, some my uh, what did I get oyster and shiitake mycelia from his company in the spring, and they're out. In the wood chips right now. Oh, beautiful. Uh,
0: yeah. I'm um, I'm just starting commercially growing uh, cordyceps on my farm here in BC, uh, which is really cool. Oh, nice. Yeah.
2: yeah and, and Paul's out. He's from your neck of the woods. Yeah, he's
0: one island over. Yeah. He, he came out for the interview. It was, it was fantastic. Sounds like you guys know each other.
2: I don't know him, but, uh, you know, okay. and, but I, fascinating chemicals and mushrooms. A lot more work needs to be done. There are, Mm-hmm. There are some reasonable studies with things like turkey tail tea and some of the things Paul talked about. But on the other hand, it's an area where there's there's a big need for a lot of better science. Um, yeah, As you know, finally, they're starting to do studies now with um, hallucinogenic mushrooms. Uh, one of the scientists that Hopkins, in fact, has shown in a couple published studies now that the um, psilocybin mushrooms are beneficial in people with depression, and uh, you know, and, and they're not addictive. These, yeah. In, in, in contrast to the opioids, right, which is a huge problem, uh, these chemicals and mushrooms that seem to have some interesting effects on the nervous system uh, are not addictive. You know, which would seem yeah. to be a, a big advantage.
0: It seems nonsensical that alcohol, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, nicotine, and uh, the opiates are legal uh, and cause a lot of harm. But I don't know how anyone could be really addicted to the strong hallucinogens. There are people who dissociate disso- because they're so traumatized. But these are—it's not an addiction. That's that's a just deep-seated trauma response. Uh, which is a, a different animal. At least that's my wife says so, and she's a, a, a Karolinska trained drug and alcohol addiction emergency doctor. So I'm gonna I'm gonna believe her there, huh? uh, which is there are people who abuse them, but they're not addicted uh, versus yeah, the actual yeah. addiction.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. All right. I'm. Uh. I'm really interested in compounds that I know that you're interested in. Uh, nerve growth factor (NGF) and BDNF, brain derived nootropic factor, and I, I wrote about those in Headstrong and I've used, uh, there's old studies on mushrooms, there's a compound, I use one of my supplements uh, from the fruit of coffee, a polyphenol that raises BDNF. Uh, Coffee itself probably does, according to some other research. Fasting, I believe, raises BDNF. Can you walk through your perspective on increasing nerve growth factor and brain-derived nootropic factor? What do you believe works and how important is it for living a long time with a good brain?
2: Well. Both BDNF and NGF uh, are important for the development of the nervous system, for the survival, growth, synapse, formation, and then the fine-tuning of the structure of the brain during development. Uh, If you eliminate the genes of either NGF or BDNF from mice, they die during development, so they're critical. In the adult brain, Uh, BDNF is particularly important throughout the brain, all over the brain, in promoting the growth, survival of neurons. It's critical for learning and memory. Um, And it's also, we we showed in my lab when I was back at the University of Kentucky in the uh, early 1990s that BDNF protects nerve cells against various types of stress. Oxidative stress, metabolic stress, something we call excitotoxic stress, which is uh, uh, unconstrained neural network activity like occurs dramatically in epilepsy, but we think to less dramatic extent in brain aging and Alzheimer's disease. So, um, NGF, on the other hand, there are only a small but important group. Of brain cells that are responsive to BDNF in the adult brain. Um, Exercise is a potent stimulator of BDNF production in the brain. Intermittent fasting stimulates BDNF production and the combination of exercise and fasting get an additive effect in boosting BDNF. And uh, I had a graduate student, Alexis Stranahan, who showed that many years ago in, in studies where she combined running wheel exercise and daily time restricted feeding, uh, uh, you know, daily short fast, and found she got uh, additive effect in increasing BDNF and then uh, actually protecting synapses against diabetes, which is kind of another angle on this. It turns out that uh, obesity and diabetes are not only bad for your heart, they're bad for your brain. Yeah. Particularly as you get, as you get older. And we think that intermittent fasting, well, we actually know it. Yeah. Intermittent fasting and exercise can reverse diabetes and obesity, uh, in humans. If a person can switch their eating pattern and get on an exercise program and, and BDNF plays a role in that. So in, uh, Individuals who are obese uh, or, and or diabetic, BDNF levels are lower in their brains compared to normal weight, metabolically healthy people.
0: One of the things that, that really changed my life when I weighed 300 pounds and I was having all kinds of cognitive dysfunction in my, my 20s and early 30s, um, I started using a thing they called the Russian sleep machine. A cerebral electrical stimulation with alternating current between the ears. Very different than the TDCS we use now, uh, and it turns out there are studies that show both TDCS and uh, CES or alternating current raise BDNF very meaningfully. Oh, that's and interesting. Yeah, I, I'd go to sleep with this thing, and and my I, I swear my brain helped to turn back on. And uh, now at forty years of in the brain upgrade place that I started. Um, we use uh, a clinical grade you know, neuroscience level uh, system that lets you have specific frequencies that are tunable and controllable by a computer. Um, and we do that to prime the brain for uh, for better learning of altered states that you learn through neurofeedback. And y- you go all the way down to uh, companies like Halo, who's been on the show, who makes you know, a TDCS headset. When I do exercise, um, I uh, especially lately, I can't, I can't keep up very well with my nine-year-old at ping pong. Can okay, ping pong is a high reaction time thing. It keeps your brain young. Doctor Amon told me to buy the ping pong table. I did. So I started saying, "All right, I need some more BDNF here." Like my my son's kicking my butt, and we've got the pro grade, you know, carbon fiber paddles, and we're going at it like he's good. Either that or I'm bad. Uh, but I was not a I was not a good competitor for him. So I started running the electrical current over my brain. Uh, again, uh, using the Halo, and all of a sudden my learning went up. And it, like, 20 minutes after doing it, it's like the ball slows down and I, I can hit it. And so I believe that's a BDNF sort of thing. But have you seen electrical stimulation, magnets, lights, uh, going to the bottom of swimming pools? I, I don't know, any other crazy tech like that that's going to make our brains more plastic?
2: That Yeah, that, the answer is... Yes, and at first I want to go back to when you were young and, and obese, right? And you did this alternating yeah. current stimulation in your brain. Did your did that reduce your appetite? The reason I ask is it turns out that BDNF suppresses appetite. Interesting. This is what uh, I don't and, think it did. Um,
0: I'm just I'm I'm going back to all the different times I'd use it. I would oftentimes use it when I was sleeping or like when I wanted to write, even when I was writing um, actually all my books. There were times where I'd, I'd change the frequency on my device to go up into the gamma ranges. Um, but...
2: It, Did it help you lose weight?
0: It could have. I, I feel like the thing that really helped me lose weight was getting rid of the inflammatory foods. You know, things that were inhibiting mitochondrial function was the number one thing. Yeah. Uh, but it could have had a, an impact. But for me, it was, wow, I just went into ketosis. Okay. And then I came out of ketosis and I went in and out and that got half my weight down, and then the other half was, oh, hey, guess what? Certain foods are gonna make you inflamed no matter what, so you gotta change the type yeah. of fat that makes you go into ketosis. Yeah. You gotta get rid of the nightshades if you're sensitive like I am, and and that was the, kind of the genesis of the whole Bulletproof Diet approach, which was these foods may or may not be good for you, but don't assume they're all good, because if you're still fat after you tried hard, <laughs> so for me it was yeah. finding the guilty yeah. suspects.
2: So let's get back to uh, stimulation yeah. and BDNF. Yeah. Um, BDNF was discovered in an animal model of epileptic seizures. There was a lab out in California that was uh, just kind of looking for genes that are responsive to epileptic seizures. And BDNF is highly responsive. Huh. So as you know, uh, one of the treatments for depression, which is still used in people who don't respond well to antidepressant drugs is electroconvulsive shock therapy right and it's it's highly antidepressant and it's highly potent in inducing bdnf expression
0: wow i didn't know
2: that Uh, also the the antidepressant drugs themselves the serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors prozac paxil etc they increase bdnf levels in the brain and in animal studies if you if you uh, we have ways we can genetically manipulate the mice so that they can't respond to BDNF, uh, those mice do not show an antidepressant response to those drugs. So altogether, the available evidence says BDNF is, is an, it's an antidepressant, endogenous antidepressant. I mentioned it's potently upregulated by exercise. Exercise is a really good antidepressant, and in fact, um, uh, there may people who exercise regularly, and then have some injury, uh, and they they stop exercising. That can often precipitate a episode of depression because you know they've been going along exercising, and all of a sudden, probably their BDNF levels are going down. so anyway, um there is some evidence that even low direct current stimulation mm-hmm. or transcranial magnetic stimulation can increase BDNF levels. Yeah. Caffeine? Caffeine will increase BDNF levels? Okay. There you go. Uh,
0: I'm uh I'm intrigued about what you do to manage your BDNF levels and I just I want to for uh, just warn everyone, look, you're an expert on aging, but you're also, the age you are, and you're a male, <laughs> and you have you know your genetic and lifestyle factors that we all have, so uh, this isn't a do what you do, but I wanna know what you do specifically for BDNF and NGF to keep yourself strong in those things, and then I wanna know why you do it. So, what's your personal practice for managing those? Do you even measure them?
2: Well, that's a problem, because uh, <laughs> we'd, I did, we'd have to measure them in the brain, or at least the cerebral spinal right. fluid, so, Uh, It turns out that there is BDNF and NGF in the blood, but the levels of those trophic factors in the blood in animal studies are not well correlated with levels in the brain. It turns out that nerve cells are not the only cells that produce BDNF. Your heart cells, interestingly, produce BDNF, and there's other cells. But anyway, kind of the bottom line is Unfortunately, unlike ketones, which we can easily measure from a, a finger stick in blood, we can't measure BDNF or NGF. Uh, there, there's no way non-invasively to do that. So I, I'm just going by the, what the animal studies today. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, so again, my, my normal routine is don't eat breakfast, drink a lot of green tea in the morning, don't drink green tea a couple hours before I exercise, which I said is around midday, say one o'clock. Okay. Because I found I can get some gastric reflux actually if I oh, if, if I okay. drink tea right before I exercise. Uh But then anyway, so then I exercise in the fasted state. My diet during the six-hour time window I eat is what most people would consider a variety of healthy foods: vegetables, fruits. A lot of nuts, yogurt. Uh, if I eat meat, it's usually fish, occasionally chicken, but not so much. Whole grains. I there's a lot of literature out there on whole grains, one way and the other, and you know there's the there are people who are sensitive to gluten and so on. But my take on the the scientific literature is that whole grains are generally good for health. So you eat whole grains. I eat whole grains. Eat. How do you stay in ketosis if you eat whole grains and fruit? Well, I go. I, pro- I go into ketosis in the morning.
0: There you go. I was hoping you were going to say that. Yeah. Uh, we'll probably agree to disagree on whole grains for the average person, but some people tolerate them really well. Um, yeah, I know they they completely shred other people over time. Um. So those are in the but, suspect But, but for Dave, these
2: well, That's I don't it. know. You know. So refined grains are not good, but the whole grains have a lot of fiber which was good for your gut microbiota. Unquestionably. And if you look at the the actual scientific studies, Mm -hmm. there's epidemiological evidence that whole grains are good. Even in the blue zones, uh, which most of your listeners will be familiar with, uh, regions in the world where people, uh, usually a large number of people live to be 100
0: the ways to raise ketones externally. There's MCT oils, um, and different ones do different things. Um, there's ketone salts, and different ones do different things. And Dr. V raised the bioidentical uh, issue there. I actually had a ketone salt product ready to ship, and I canceled it because, uh, like, I'm not selling something that might feel good but cause harm later. Uh, but you know there are people who are advocates of them, especially short-term use and things like that. And then there's the esters, which Doctor Beach and I talked about. You talked about, and I actually synthesized some six years ago. But they're forty thousand dollars a kilo. I couldn't commercialize them, um, and they're still you know hundred dollars for three doses kind of things for, for for people to do it. Is there a risk? Uh, let me put it another way: there is a risk with blood sugar. If your blood sugar levels are high it doesn't mean that you have more energy and you've done a good thing. It means you're not metabolizing blood sugar. If your ketone hmm. levels are exceptionally high, uh, is is there any sort of a similar situation where, hey, they're high because you can't metabolize them, right? You're going to drain them as fast as you can? Or should we not worry about, you know, my, my ketone levels are higher than your ketone levels sort of things?
2: Yeah, uh, this is a good question. Um, we know that, with long-term fasts of weeks or even months, or do we know? Yeah, we assume that it's important. It's important that the ketones be high because the cells are using the ketones yeah. for energy. Um, but as far as you know, ex- exogenously elevating ketones with MCTs or ketone ester, long-term, chronically, we don't know. Um, I my current thinking is intermittent elevations may be better than continuous and you know the cycling between activating mTOR and inhibiting it upregulating autophagy then going into a growth mode uh that switching back and forth is important and, if, and as much as the ketones play roles in that and, and in fact we showed ketones uh can stimulate BDNF production oh wow but But, you know, however, this is very interesting. It turns out that BDNF is normally produced by neurons in an activity dependent manner. That is, it's produced when a neuron is electrically active. Mm. And so it's produced when and where it's needed. And we found if, if we swamp neurons with BDNF continuously, it's actually bad for them. Oh, interesting! And we we did this in a published study where we were looking at the autonomic nervous system. Uh, remember, I said that intermittent fasting increases parasympathetic activity and reduces heart rate. So, and, and we had evidence there was a role for BDNF in that. But it gets a little complicated. But the the parasympathetic neurons that send their axons to the heart, the neurons themselves are located in the brain stem. They use acetylcholine as a neurotransmitter. And so BDNF, if we uh, transiently apply BDNF to those neurons, they produce more acetylcholine, heart rate goes down. However, if, if we continuously swamp those neurons with BDNF, then They deplete the acetylcholine, and the heart rate actually goes up. So my point is, your your systems are very intricate and are producing things where and when they're needed, and it may not be good to continuously swamp the system. So we don't know for sure with ketones, but my intuition says maybe it's not such a good idea to just have ketones up. 24-7 Twenty-four-seven
0: chronic. I'd say the the jury's out on it. I've I've gone from using you know brain octane uh, just in my morning coffee to right, I pretty much put it on every meal, but my ketone levels are generally not above .3 except in the morning. Uh, so I think they're higher than physiological, but they're not high. Uh, and what I feel like that does is that affects my ghrelin uh, levels, so I'm just not hungry. And so I can go long times without food. My brain, it just feels effortless. And we know that your neurons, uh, neurons will use ketones even in the presence of glucose because of the studies you talked about earlier. But the glial cells, you know, the repair cells in the brain, uh, and I know I'm simplifying what glial cells do there, but they they like glucose more than ketones, right? So that's why I'm really concerned about the, the the keto bro diets out there where, you know, if you eat another carb again, you're a bad human being kind of thing because it, it feels like there's a role for carbs.
2: I, I think there is too, Dave. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, there was a, a recently published study uh, It's that uh, it suggests the paleo diet's not good long term. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea just to, eat only fats and protein. In fact, pro- too much protein is definitely bad from the standpoint of aging.
0: Uh, oh yeah, the paleo diet is, they're burned protein and way yeah. too much protein. Um, in fact, my, my new anti-aging book uh, that's coming out soon, I've read a lot about protein restriction. In fact, pr- uh, there's one day a week of protein fasting um, was part of the original Bulletproof Diet because it increases autophagy You yeah. have less than 15 yep. grams. But for you, what kind of protein is worst and what kind is best?
2: <laughs> well, you know, usually in, in animal meats, you've got a mixture of fats and protein. And so uh, the fish story is strong. You know, I, you, you can't go wrong eating fish. Yeah. Ideally, some of the smaller fish with regards to the mercury issue. But, you know, red meat, Yeah. you don't need it at all. Uh, you get plenty of protein. <laughs> you know, ev- Everything's all goofed up. We Our, our parents told us uh, uh, you won't, don't get any dessert, which is sugar, unless you finish your meal, right? So eat, all, eat a lot, overeat, and then you can have your sugar. Yeah. And, so you, you overeat? Know, you got to eat your meat, drink your milk to get protein. You know, so kids are getting too much protein. The mTOR pet... Mtor pathway mm-hmm. is overactivated. Their cells aren't removing the garbage. Right. Um, and, and in fact, the, the huge problem that's hard to tackle is how to change the family environment, kids' habits, their eating habits, whether or not they exercise throughout their life. For many people, it's determined by what their parents are doing. In the animal studies. The The biggest impact of the intermittent fasting is on average lifespan,
0: mm-hmm. but not total lifespan, and,
2: and not maximum, although there's some effects. So then the other thing is health span.
0: Yeah, you know, that, that matters I, more. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm starting to I mentioned get some orthopedic issues now, which is really my only health issues right now.
0: People who are interested in your work probably the easiest way to find you is uh, googling Mark Matson, and you're the first couple of pages of results. Uh, and uh, your TED talk is totally worth watching. And I'm just you know, thanks, thanks for the decades of work on anti-aging and fasting and neurology. I find it fascinating, and you've you've done a good thing.
2: Well, thanks, Dave. I've enjoyed it a lot, and you keep up the good work too. Um, I, I, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, there's a big need for translating this basic research into practical things that people can apply to their own lives.
0: Well, I will keep doing my best. I'll ask uh, the hard questions. And uh, just to reiterate for people listening, uh, I think we're both serious. If someone out there wants to do a PhD or some other kind of research project on antioxidants and intermittent fasting, it's a wide open area that totally needs attention. And I never thought about that until today. So uh, you, you stimulated a new idea. Thank you. Okay, Dave. All right. If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Head on out there and uh, skip breakfast. You'll like your life better uh, if you do that, most likely. And if you hate your life when you skip breakfast, you got to figure out all right, what's going on with my metabolism? Because I'm probably not as resilient as I'd like to be. And then you can work on that. Uh, And if you want to know how to do that, there's a whole variety of episodes of Bulletproof Radio. We talked about a few of them today. Uh, Listen to this one again, get the show notes. Uh, You could read The Bulletproof Diet. uh, You could read Headstrong. I talk about intermittent fasting in both of those books. uh, And there's just so much knowledge available right now on the blog uh, and in other places. And really, if you don't know what else to do, wake up, skip breakfast, don't put sugar in your coffee, don't put artificial sweeteners in it, and see what happens, and you just might be okay.